0: Amen. Thank you, ladies. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. I'm so thankful for that, aren't you? And so many things change in life, but God's Word is unchanging, and it's forever settled in heaven. I figured if it's settled in heaven, it's probably settled on earth too, and we can trust it and live it. And uh, thank you for being here tonight for this meeting uh, in God's house. Let's go to 1 Kings chapter 20 tonight. 1 Kings chapter 20. I'm going to look at a small passage of scripture, uh, a passage that has always kind of intrigued me, and uh, I believe that there's some great thoughts and truth here for us tonight. First Kings chapter twenty and verse thirty-nine. First Kings twenty. Verse 39, And as the king passed by, he cried unto the king, and he said, Thy servant went out into the midst of the battle. Behold, a man turned aside and brought a man unto me, and said, Keep this man. If by any means he be missing, then shall thy life be for his life, or else thou shalt pay a talent of silver. And as thy servant was busy here and there, he was gone. And the king of Israel said unto him, So shall thy judgment be, thyself hast decided it. God, throughout Scripture, describes our life as a Christian, as a battle. We see military terminology often used in the Bible to describe our journey as a Christian. Uh, Paul told Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Recognizing that there was going to be some opposition, there was going to be that which would try to defeat Timothy, uh, Paul told him to fight the good fight of faith. In 2 Timothy 2, in verse 4, he said, No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. So in reality, this Life that we live as a Christian is a, is a battle. We are soldiers of the Lord Jesus Christ and we're not to entangle with the things of this life so that we can please the one who has chose us. Paul told us in Ephesians 6 to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers, against rulers of darkness, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So again, we see there is opposition, there's an adversary. Peter put it this way, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. So we find this kind of terminology throughout the scripture that God tells us we are in a war. Sometimes that war perhaps is against our own flesh. Sometimes it's a war against the world. Sometimes it's a war against the devil himself. But I think all of us tonight, if we were honest, we would have to say that oftentimes our biggest battle is not with our flesh or not with the world or not with the devil. It's with our own busyness. You know, most of us know that we should read the Bible every day. But the truth is, often the day goes by and we just got busy. We all know that we ought to pray. We all know that prayer works, that God answers prayer, that God hears prayer, and God responds to prayer. We know that, and we know we ought to pray, but sometimes we just get too busy to pray. We all know we ought to be a witness. We ought to uh, tell folks around us about Christ. But oftentimes that opportunity comes and we're in a hurry. We've got things to do. We've got something on our agenda and we're just too busy to do perhaps that work of God that he's given us to do. Our battle is with busyness. And in these two verses that kind of are almost parenthetical in this chapter. They don't really connect to the verses in front or after them. But I believe God shows us here four skirmishes in this battle with busyness. First of all, we see an assignment. There's an assignment that's been given. In the midst of this battle, this uh, man is told to keep this man. Uh, perhaps a prisoner of war, perhaps someone that was uh, to be secured until the war was over for some purpose, some reason. And so this soldier, this person in the army is given a responsibility. He's given an assignment. You know, all of us have some assignments from God. Now, God has a specific will for every person in this room, and and that specific will is different for every person in this room. Uh, God uses each of us in different ways. He, He has us in different places doing different things, and we all are a team, so to speak, to accomplish the work of God. And so specifically, there's a will of God for every one of us. And by the way, God's will for our life is good, it's acceptable, and it's perfect. And I'm glad that God uh, uh, doesn't just kind of, you know, uh, randomly give us life and tell us, well, you know, enjoy it. But God has a plan for our life. He has a desired haven that we would reach. God says, I, uh, my thoughts toward you are not evil. They're thoughts of, of peace to bring you to an expected end. God has a plan for our life. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. But you know, there's a general assignment that's been given to all of us. There are some things that are the will of God for every person in this room. For example, we have a prayer assignment. Did you know that you don't have to pray about whether you should pray? We have an assignment to pray. In fact, in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 8, he says, I will, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath or doubting. Notice he said, I will. So that's God's will for all of us. Uh, God wants all of us to be people of prayer, to take time with God every day, to bring our requests to Him, but to let Him speak to our hearts as well through the Word of God. We have a prayer assignment. We all have a purity assignment. Again, we don't have to wonder, well, should I keep myself from this world? Should I, should I try to, uh, you know, stay uninvolved with the sins of this world? God's given us a purity assignment. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 3, he says, For this is the will of God. Well, that's pretty plain. This is the will of God, even your sanctification, that everyone should know how to possess his vessel. The word means their body, uh, not according to the lust of concupiscence as the gentiles which know not god but we're to keep our vessel we're to sanctify that vessel we're to keep that vessel our body for the purpose of serving the lord jesus christ paul told timothy keep thyself pure we have a purity assignment we're a chosen generation we're a royal priesthood we're a holy nation We're a peculiar people, and we should be showing forth the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, which were not a people, but now are the people of God. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak evil among you, they may by your good works glorify God in the day of visitation. We have a prayer assignment. We have a purity assignment. We have a publishing assignment. We don't have an option to tell people the gospel. We don't have an option to let others know about Christ. We have an obligation. Go ye, therefore, into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's not just the pastor's job. That's not just the deacon's job. That's not just the Sunday school teacher's responsibility. Go ye. We have a publishing assignment. Go ye, therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things see, the things that we've heard among many witnesses, we're to commit the same to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Sometimes we look at this world today and we think, how in the world are we going to get the gospel to so many people? There are now 7.7 billion people on planet Earth. 7.7 billion people. How are we going to get the gospel to all those people? They say 60% of those people have never heard the gospel one time. It's not that they've heard it and rejected it. They've never heard it. And God says we're to take that gospel to every creature. How are we going to do that? You know, it's not as intimidating as you think. If I take the gospel to someone and they hear it and receive it, and then I teach them to take that gospel to someone. You know, if all of us did that, uh, we could reach this world. In fact, you know, if, if, if I won one person to Christ this year, I don't think that'd be too lofty of a goal, uh, but I think God would help me to accomplish that if I, if I committed that to the Lord. And I said, I, I'm going to try to win one person to the Lord this year, And when they get saved, I'm going to teach them how to win somebody to Christ with me the next year. Well, by next year, this time, we'd have two people saved. By the following year, 2021, we'd have four people. By 2022, we'd have eight people. By 2023, we'd have uh, 16 people. By 2024, we'd have 32. In 2025, we'd have 64. And on and on it would go. And you know how many people would be saved in 35 years? You can get a calculator and figure it out. But it's just over $8 billion. You see, God hasn't asked us to do something that can't be done. It's not like we have to figure out how are we going to. It's just all of us taking our assignment of telling somebody about Christ. And and surely we, that's not too great of a challenge for us to say, Lord, there's somebody in my neighborhood. There's somebody at my workplace. There's somebody that I'm going to come across paths with in this coming year that I can share the gospel with and by your grace, see them saved. we have a publishing assignment. We have a praise assignment. I know sometimes praise gets Kind of a, a negative connotation in some places because of the way it's misused, but God tells us to praise Him. He commands us to praise Him. I will therefore that men uh, 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 praise me. He wants to. He's glorified through our praise. Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me. He says in Psalm fifty and verse twenty-three. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. A praise assignment. It's amazing what praising will do to our own spirit and to the lives of others around us. So we have an assignment, and no matter how busy we are, we dare not shrink back from the assignments that God has given to us. This man was given an assignment. Keep this man. But notice, with that assignment came an accountability. He says in verse number 39, Keep this man. If by any means he be missing, then shall thy life be for his life, or else thou shalt pay a talent of silver. There was an accountability with this assignment. It doesn't sound like there are going to be any excuses that would be acceptable. This is a direct command keep this man, no excuses. No no alibis, no instead ofs, no ifs or ands or buts. Uh, 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 this is an assignment without excuse. When I was in college, I heard Dr. Monroe Parker preach and Dr. Parker was a very witty man and he had a lot of little, little quotes and little sayings and, and in those days I had a habit if I heard something that I, I liked like that, I'd write it in the back of my Bible and try to, try to think about it later and maybe even memorize it, you know. And I remember Dr. Parker, he said this. He said, a lie is an excuse wrapped in the skin of reason. And you know, I've remembered that because so oftentimes we kind of, we say, well, you know, I'm just, I, I just had a good excuse. I, I had a reason why I didn't. But really it boils down to a lie, just wrapped in the skin of reason. Are we making excuses about our assignment? Are we saying, well, I, I don't have the talent or I don't have the time or I don't have the ability, uh, I, I don't have an, uh, an opportunity? There were no excuses here. There were no exceptions. If by any means, he'd be missing. No exceptions. I don't want to hear uh, your reason uh, why this man would have escaped. Uh, uh, no exceptions. Sounds serious. Sounds like this, uh, this uh, uh, man meant what he said. You know, God didn't give us ten suggestions. He gave us ten commandments. The Bible's not a book of options, it's a book of obligations. And one day we will give an account of our obedience. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every man may receive the things done in his body according to that which he hath done, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Every man's work shall be made manifest for the day. The judgment day shall declare it. It shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Oh, rejoice, young man, in thy youth, and let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth. Walk in the ways of thine heart and in the sight of thine eyes, but know thou that for all these things God will bring thee into judgment. It's easy to forget that. It's easy to just kind of go through life forgetting that one day there's an accountability. One day we must give an account of our life to God. One day we will meet Him the book of Jeremiah, God told the nation of Israel, he said, I, I, I'm having a hard time figuring this out. He said, the, the, the stork and the crane and the turtle, they, they all know the, the time of their coming. They, they all understand certain things, but my people know not the judgment of the Lord. In other words, the, the animals, they know when to hibernate. The birds know when to migrate. I mean, the animals know. They have an instinct. They, they, they have placed within them this, this created DNA, so to speak, of what's coming. But my people can't figure out that one day they're going to stand before me, that one day they're going to give an account of their life. There's an accountability. When I was about 13, you know, you get into junior high and you start thinking that you're, you're, you're a little bit bigger than you really are. My, my mother used to sense that coming on in my life, and she had this, this saying. She would say, John, why don't you get down off your high horse and live with the rest of us for a while? And uh, that usually kind of put me in my place for a minute at least. But you know, you get to junior high, and if you're like me, you start going to a bigger school, and you you start making a few friends, and and uh, for me, I was playing sports, and, and and you know, you start thinking, you know, I don't I don't need all this stuff at home, and my parents aren't the only people in my life, and 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 you start you start looking at yourself a little differently, and, and boy, I got to that place, and and. Uh, one night I came home after a, a, a ball practice and my mom had saved my dinner in the oven and she got it out and placed it on the table and she was cleaning up a few things, getting ready to go out and help my dad in the barn and my dad had already gone out to start the milking and, and I would eat uh, quickly and then I would go out and, and uh, take my mom's place and finish up, you know. And, and so uh, I, I came in the house that night and, and uh, was acting a little bit like a big shot and I don't remember the conversation exactly, but I, I, I said something to my mom in sort of a disrespectful way. Boy, my mom, she wasn't a very big person. In like fact, she's, she's 90 years old now. She lives with us. I doubt if she weighs 80 pounds now, and I don't think she weighed more than 100 then. But boy, she had had enough of my smart mouth, you know. And she came over to that table where I was seated, and she grabbed me by the arm. She jerked me to my feet. Now, I was bigger than she was. But I'm in a, fl- in a flash, she bent me over, and she starts spanking me. I'm in junior high, and she's spanking me. And you know, she could hurt me, but I wasn't going to let her know that. And boy, she, she spanked me good, and finally, I guess she got tired, and she kind of stood me up. And I looked at her, and I went, huh. Like, you know, is that the best you can do? Well, she put her finger in my face and she said, you go see your dad. Well, now, dad was a little different story. Dad wasn't huge, but he had been farming since he was 15 on his own. And and dad, dad just, he was strong. He was a little bit taller than me and, and a little bit heavier than me. And, and, but uh, uh, he was strong. His hands were, were literally twice the size of mine. His ring size, twice the size of mine now. I mean, my dad was just strong. And so I knew I had no choice at this point. Judgment Day had come. And I remember walking out to that barn. It was about 100 yards from the house to the barn. And boy, I took my good natured time. Now I knew my dad would be on the far end of the barn because we always milked the cows in order. We had them in stalls, about 50 milk cows. And we'd, we'd milk them in order. And dad would be down on the far end. So I went in the other end of the barn and kind of quietly slipped in. And I saw him. He was down there by that first cow. And why well, I, I walked slowly down that center uh, between those two sides of cows. and And I got to where he was. And he was he was uh, crouched down holding a milker on that very first cow. My dad was very careful with the milking. He always did the milking himself. Uh, never took a vacation, never missed a milking in his entire life. And, and uh, he, he didn't want the cows to be mistreated in any way. so he did the milking. And, and he was holding that milker on, making sure she was completely milked out, had his back to me. And, and I was taught as a boy never to disturb my dad when he was working, especially around the animals, around equipment. Uh, because, you know, you don't want to startle someone or startle an animal. And so I just kind of quietly stood there. I didn't care if he worked the rest of his life. <laughs> I was in trouble. And pretty soon he, he pulled that milker off the cow and his back was still to me. And he, he uh, reached up and pulled the suction hoses off the line and, and uh, picked up that milking machine, probably about 50 pounds of milk in it. He stepped across that gutter and put that milk machine down at my feet. By this time, the tears were already streaming down his face. He looked up at me and his lips began to quiver and he said, John, your sin makes me so sick. You know, I remember as a 13-year-old kid, at that moment, wishing, just wishing that my dad would take that giant farm hand of his and smack me right across the face because I deserved it. I remember standing there thinking, I wish dad would just grab that two-by-four up above the beam there that he kept for the ornery cows. I wish he would have grabbed that and hit me with it because I deserved it. But my dad never touched me that night he never spoke another word he just stood there and wept over my sin i'm gonna tell you something those tears kept me out of a lot of trouble as a teenager there were a lot of nights after a ball game where my friends would say hey john come on we got a party going and i wanted to go to those parties I wanted to try beer. I wanted to smoke a cigarette. I wanted to have a girlfriend. I wanted all those things. I wanted to see what drugs were like. I wanted to. But every time it was presented, I'd say, I got to go. I never told my friends why. In my mind, I'd see those tears of my dad. And I'd say, I'm not going through that again. Friends, somehow we've got to have a picture in our mind that we're going to stand before God one day. We're going to stand before our Heavenly Father. We're going to give an account of this life. We can excuse our business. We can say, well, I just didn't have time for this or that. I, 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 I know I should have raised my family different. I, I know I should have won my neighbor to Christ. I, I know I should have prayed more. I should have been more faithful to the church. We can have all the excuses, but one day there's an accountability. We're going to give an account. Here was an assignment. There was an accountability, but notice an allurement. In verse forty, as thy servant was busy here and there. Now I read that many times and kind of just thought that maybe that was a phrase like we would use it. You know, you know what'd you do today? I was busy here and there. You know, by that we would mean I was just involved in a lot of stuff. You know, this and that. But as I got to thinking about that busy here and there, I believe there was a misdirected passion because he said, I was busy here. In other words, indicating something perhaps on the inside, something within. You know, the truth is oftentimes when I renege on a responsibility that God has given me, oftentimes when I fail in an assignment that God has given to me, it's because there was something wrong on the inside. I was busy here. There was something that was prioritized in my heart more than the priority that God had given to me. I got busy here. We're all driven from within for, for certain things. We all have a passion for certain things. It might be a, a, you know, a sports team. It might be our job. It might even be our family. It can be uh, uh, all kinds of things. And, and we can get a passion here. But Oh, that we would have the passion of the psalmist who said, As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Lord, all my desire is before Thee, the psalmist said in Psalm 38. In Psalm 73, in verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but Thee? There's none that I desire upon earth besides Thee. Is that the passion of our heart? Is that the passion within? I believe here was a misdirected passion. I was busy here and there. I see in the there a misguided priority. The there would perhaps indicate something on the outside. And we all understand there are many allurements from without. There are things in this world that attract or distract us from the the mission that God has given to us. That's why the Proverbs in chapter 4 says, Let thine eyes look right on. Let thine eyelids look right before thee. Ponder the path of thy feet. Let all thy ways be established. Turn not to the right hand or to the left. Let all thy ways be established. Solomon told his son, My son if sinners, entice thee. Consent thou not. There are many things on the outside, many things in the world that can pull us away from our assignment. I think of Moses, who raised in Egypt, was brought up perhaps in some of the finest that could be had, a man that was trained in the greatest of schools, perhaps had access to all the modern conveniences of that time, and yet the Bible says when Moses was come to years, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer the affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ's greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. Moses could have easily gotten off assignment. He could have easily gotten out of the will of God. He could have easily missed the will of God for his life by all the things around him. I think of Daniel, Daniel taken captive, taken away from his family, brought into Babylon. And and, and Daniel could have been bitter and angry and frustrated with God for letting it all happen. And Daniel could have said, oh, who cares, you know? What does it matter if I serve God? I'll just go the way of the world. God didn't do me right. Uh, God would have, should have protected me. God should have, I thought he loved me. No, we see Daniel purposing his heart. That he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat or the wine which he drank. You see, uh, say no to those allurements from without. Enter not into the path of the wicked. Go not in the way of evil men. Neither yield yourselves as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God, an allurement. Those allurements are many, some from within, some from without, busy here and there. And then notice an acknowledgement. As thy servant, verse 40, was busy here and there, he was gone. He was given this task to keep this man, this prisoner. How long, he wasn't told. How to keep him wasn't specified. Keep this man. No doubt he was given that assignment, knowing by the one who gave it that he had the ability to do so. But as he got busy here and there, We see a somber regret. He was gone. Friends, one day life's going to be gone. One day your strength is going to be gone. Some of us know that one day the children are gone. Life passes by, doesn't it? And it's easy in the midst of the battle of life to get busy. And all of a sudden we realize that our opportunities are gone. You know, if you live to be 70, which Psalm 90 tells us that's kind of the average lifespan of a person, three score years and ten. If you live to be 70, you've got 25,550 days to spend. It's a lot of days. If you live to be 70, you've got 613,200 hours to spend. If you live to be 70, you've got 36,792,000 minutes to spend. It's a lot of time. But young people, can I tell you something? It goes by pretty quick. Now, I know when you're sitting in class in school, it seems like it's never going to pass. I used to, when I was in school, watch the clock. I was kind of the self appointed clock watcher. I wanted to make sure the bells rang on time, you know, and let somebody know if they weren't ringing on time. So I'd watch the clock. I went to my homeroom one day and Mr. Coletti, my homeroom teacher, he put a sign under the clock. It said, time will pass. Will you? <laughs> that kind of cured me for a while. But I know when you're in school or, you know, on a rainy day, you have to stay inside. Whatever time just seems to drag. just seems like it'll never end. I'll tell you something. Life is pretty brief. If I live to be 70, i got less than 1,000 days left. Not very many out of 25,550. Life's a vapor. appears for a little time, then vanishes away. Man cometh forth like a flower and is cut down. He fleeth also as a shadow and continueth not. That's why God says, boast not thyself of tomorrow. I know it's not what a day may bring forth. Can I tell you something? The devil doesn't care what you do as long as you don't do it today. The devil will say, oh, yeah, get saved one of these days. Just don't, not today. Do it tomorrow. Tomorrow never comes. The devil doesn't care that we have plans to raise our kids, or plans to get involved at church, or plans to witness to our neighbor, or plans to do this or that. But the devil always is good at saying, "Do it tomorrow." Do it tomorrow. And this man comes to a somber regret; he was gone. But then, notice a self-inflicted result. Verse forty: The king of Israel said unto him so shall thy judgment be thyself has decided it. You know, I think in the back of our minds, we think when we stand before God that we will have ample amount of excuse and ample amount of places to put the blame for not fulfilling our responsibility because that's what we do in life. We, we tend to rationalize, we, we tend to blame shift, we, we tend to, to say, well, it, it wasn't my fault. I, I, I mean, I realize I, 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 didn't, I didn't do what I was supposed to, but if so-and-so would have or wouldn't have, or, or if they would have done their part, or, or if this would have happened, or if this circumstance would have been different, and, and we have this sort of bevy of, of reasons why we fail to fulfill our responsibilities. Boy, this is a stunning declaration here by this king. Thyself has decided. Job said, and be it indeed that I have erred, mine error remaineth with myself. Proverbs 9 and verse 12 says, If thou be wise, thou shalt be wiser unto thyself, but if thou scornest, thou alone shalt bear it. Ezekiel said, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son, but the righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. We'll stand alone before the Lord. It won't be, well, the church, or well, my neighbors, or well, so and so, no. Thyself has decided. When I went to college, I kind of went kicking and screaming. I I really didn't want to give my life to the Lord and I I, I didn't want to live for the world. I just wanted to live for myself. And I I had this notion that if I gave my life to the Lord, that He'd probably make me miserable. I figured He'd probably call me to be a missionary and probably send me to Africa. I'd have to live in a mud hut, have snakes crawl over me at night while I slept and eat boiled baboon for supper and have neighbors, little short people that boiled things in pots, particularly Caucasian missionaries. And I, I just I just didn't want any part of that, you know. I just had this idea that if I serve God, I'll be miserable and I want to be happy. And so when the Lord was dealing with me about going to Bible college, I didn't want to go because I I knew where that was going to lead. If, And so I was resisting Him, but the Lord as a way of getting your attention, and he certainly did in my life. Put me in a hospital for three months, my senior year in high school, and I came within about five seconds of losing my life. And God said, "You ever do it? You either do what I want, or I'm going to kill you." I got the message, and I like to live, so I went to Bible college. I didn't really want to be there; I, I, I was just putting up with it. But I'm thankful in a Bible college setting. There, there are people that are very gracious and people very loving and people that have a concern for people like that, and that was the case for me. And I, a couple of men really, really took an interest in my life and and began to uh, try to try to help me. One was a, a basketball coach. His name was David Wykes. Coach Wykes was six feet eight inches tall. He he had played basketball at the University of Minnesota, in fact, had played on their national championship team with Lou Hudson, Archie Clark. And Coach Weikes was a brilliant man academically, but he was also just a, a common kind of a person that you could talk to. And and Coach Wykes, having been involved in sports and in my life, he he kind of knew which buttons to push with me and and, and he began to, to come around me and really began to encourage me and, and, and just tried to kind of nurture me along in, in the way that he knew would, would help me. And and he just became a, 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 my go-to guy as far as when I had a question, if I needed some help or counsel, he's where I went. I'd go to his office and he'd, he'd somehow just know what to say. And He'd take me to the Bible and just help me to see things. And he was the one that encouraged me to take a summer internship up in Minneapolis. And it was there that God called me to preach. And I, I owe a lot of that early development in my life to Coach Dave White. He just, he just mentored me. The other man was my freshman speech teacher. His name was Herb Pettigo. And Mr. Pettigo was a young teacher. I, I don't think he'd been teaching but a couple of years, but... Well, he made freshman speech fun. Now, I hated speech in high school, just absolutely hated in front of being, being in front of people. And, and yet, uh, Mr. Pettigold made speech class a lot of fun, and he, he got me to try out for a play, and I was in a play. I was a walk-on in a Shakespearean play called As You Like It. And I was on stage for all of about 30 seconds and knew where to stand and knew how to nod my head. I had no idea what the play was about, but I acted like I did. Learned how to act. And had a lot of fun. And Mr. Pettigo, again, he was, he was kind of soft-spoken. He was the statistician for our football team would travel with us. And I got to know him and kind of out of the classroom. And, and again, he just took an interest in me, began to pray for me and encourage me. And, and these two men really made a difference in my life and, and got me on the right track, got me around the right friends, got me in the right deal. And, and boy, I just, I, I owe so much to him. But I came back from my senior year of college and, Coach Weichs wasn't there. And I inquired about it, and I said, oh, he's he, he joined the PGA. He's playing golf. He's out of the professional golf to it." I said, he what? Yeah. I said, he's the one that told me to go into the ministry. He's playing golf? Boy, that just kind of stunned me. And then, about halfway through my senior year, one day in chapel, the president got up and he announced that Mr. Pettigo had been fired. And he said, uh, We don't feel like we need to try to explain it. You just need to trust us. But he'll not be returned, he's gone. Don't try to contact him. Don't go to his house. I'm sitting there going, what? I was with him till 11 o'clock the night before. We were building a set for the next drama. We were, we, we were, we were working together till 11 o'clock at night. You're telling me now, 10 hours later, he's gone? Boy, well, as soon as chapel was over, I drove to his house. I said, don't go to his house. I drove to his house. I jumped up on that porch. I knocked on the door. Sounded hollow inside. I went to the window, looked in the window, everything. There wasn't a stick of furniture in that house. you was gone. And they wouldn't tell us why. And I remember standing on that porch thinking, I'm probably the next one will be gone because there's probably a faculty member down the street watching what I'm doing and I'm not supposed to be here. I remember standing on that porch thinking, Lord, I don't get this. I mean, these are the men they encourage me to follow you, to, to serve you, to give my life to you, to, to go into ministry, and now they're gone. Now, I remember the Lord, you know, sometimes you just feel like he almost has an audible voice, don't you? And He just he just said, John, you worry about you. You follow me. And you know, I'm sure glad I did. Coach Weichs played on the PGA for a couple of years, did okay. I'm thankful he's in the pastorate today. And I'm glad I didn't quit because of that. I was preaching a few years ago in a church in Southern California. I was sitting down front waiting for Sunday school to start, and an elderly couple came down the aisle. They stopped where I was seated, and they said, Are you John Gatch? I said, I am. They said, We bring you greetings. I said, From who? I said her pedagogue. I said, well, how do you know her pedagogue? They said, He's our son. He's doing great. He and his wife, Cheryl, told told me where they live. I I had heard a lot of rumors. I people tried to tell me, hey, did you what happened to this I said, No, I don't want to know. I gotta concentrate on what God wants me to do, and I'm sure glad I did. I'm thankful both those men are serving the Lord today and doing well in the Lord. But you know, the devil could have used that to get me off track. It's so important that we don't say, well, this happened and that happened, and if this wouldn't have taken place, and that's my reason. But you know, when we stand before the Lord, we ourselves are going to decide it. We won't be too busy to die. We won't be too busy for the rapture. We won't be too busy for the judgment seat of Christ. But we can get too busy to prepare to meet God. May tonight, we just kind of look at our lives and say, you know, maybe I need to rearrange some things. Because if I'm not careful, I'll get busy here and there. And all of a sudden, everything that God intended for my life is gone. Let's pray together. Father.